0: We're going to read from Matthew chapter 19 today. So you can turn there, Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. I was able this past week to worship with a, a church and uh, sing with them, and they sang those psalms, and it was very difficult to enjoy it. I'm blessed to sing the psalms. Matthew chapter 16, or 19, verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, but with god all things are possible. then peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. what then will we have? jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit, the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would send your spirit now. Holy Spirit, we ask as you come, give us illumination. And give us understanding. Work in our hearts, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. You want me to move that? If I'm going to preach with a cough drop in my mouth. You might as well be able to see it. <laughs> so, in, in verses 16 through 30 of Matthew chapter 19, we have an entirely different picture than we've been seeing so far in this chapter. As we read, a man has come and he's seeking eternal life, but. As we will see this week and maybe next week, he doesn't really yet understand the cost of eternal life. Now, leading into this section, as we read, and setting the scene is a question. This young man has asked a question. Unlike the Pharisees, it doesn't seem like he's trying to test or or trick Jesus or tempt our Lord. He seems sincere. And so before we get into the thick of the story, I want to analyze just the question because it's a very important question. And here's the question. And I want you to ask yourself this question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Think about that. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? life. Now, hopefully, maybe as I read it aloud, you already realize the issues. You're already seeing the problem there, I hope, because this this is actually a very sad scene, one of the saddest scenes in all of Scripture. And so I want to take this opening scene, just this question, I want to lay it over top of your life, and I want you to do that in your seat as we look at this man and, and see who it is that he's speaking with and what he's asking. I want you to lay that over your life because in, in this story there may be many things that are different between your life and the life of this man, but there may be things that are similar. If you do find that the picture matches, you overlay it and it lines up. In other words, you think like this man and act like this man and question like this man, God may perhaps, perhaps grant knowledge leading to repentance. He may perhaps help you to understand the answer to this question. So that's what I want to do is, is just study this opening question and set the, the stage and, and perhaps next week we'll be able to go further. The first thing I want us to notice about this question is the one who is asking. The one who is asking. We read at the beginning of verse 16, And behold, a man came up to him. A man. He's already in a higher position in society than the children that were in the previous scene. He's a man. A full-grown adult man. In verse 22 we read, it says, When the young man heard this. He's a young man. Between the ages of 20 and 40. the, The age of all of the men in here less one. He's a young man. This phrase, a young man, is used in Acts 2 and verse 17 to contrast the young men with the old men. So later in Acts chapter 5, this same term is used for those who dragged away and buried the bodies of Ananias and Sapphira. More than likely, young male servants. It's a young man. I would guess he's probably closer to his 20s or 30s we also know that he's a rich man because in Luke chapter 18 and verse 23, Luke tells us he was extremely rich. Not just comfortable. Most of us are comfortable. Not just wealthy. Most of us are wealthy. Exceedingly rich. He was extremely rich. Mark in chapter 10 and verse 22 and here in Matthew 1922 both tell us that he had great possessions. He has a lot of money and a lot of stuff, exceedingly wealthy. And Luke 18, verse 18 also tells us that he is a ruler. <coughs> now sometimes that word "ruler" is translated as "prince" or "chief" or "magistrate. He was a governing official, a government official in Luke 12 verse 58 the same term is used for those to whom a court case is to be taken a magistrate actually higher than a judge a a case would be taken to a magistrate the magistrate would decide the matter and then it would be taken to the judge and the judge would determine what the sentence would be so he's higher than a judge and so when we look at who is asking this question. We have a young man, probably between the ages of 20 and 40, who sat in a seat of authority in his community. He was extremely wealthy, and he was the owner of great possessions. Matthew Henry says, "...it is probable that he had abilities beyond his years, else his youth would have debarred him from the magistracy." He's probably smart, probably well-read, well-studied, or else he wouldn't have had this job. He he exceeded those who were his peers. Can you picture this man? Try to to imagine him first in his day, because that's what we're reading. And then picture this type of a man in our own society. A young, accomplished, well-known financial tycoon with political power. That's this young man. And he came, Mark tells us, and he knelt before the Lord, which is, would have been uncommon. Again, he appears to be sincere in his question. He's not trying to test or trick. He appears sincere as he asks, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, I would imagine that he's worked hard to get where he is. This quickly in life, again, he's probably studied long, he's studied hard. Perhaps maybe now he thinks that if he applies that same can-do attitude to spiritual things, he might earn eternal life. The disciples did not rebuke him like they did the children, so the disciples, in their ignorance, see him as someone worthy of Christ's time. And again, maybe he thinks, if I just apply myself, I've worked hard everywhere else, I can have eternal life. Maybe that's the answer he thinks he's going to receive. Or perhaps he sees his great career and his wealth and his, his stability, and he assumes that he might now top that off with eternal life. His place in life is secure. Maybe now he's thinking it's time to start considering the next world and the next life. Now let me ask, is that you? Is that how you think? Are the things of eternity just an afterthought, sort of a a second issue? Those things concerning God and His Christ and eternity and sin and heaven and hell, do they occupy the primary place of, of prominence, of priority in your heart and in your mind... Or are those just sort of Sunday things? After Sunday, I really never think about God and His Christ, the exaltation of Christ and the worship of God, the, the leading of the Spirit, the, my sin and conviction of sin, where I might go after I die. I don't really think about that stuff other than on Sunday. Or maybe... You're thinking, well, once I get my life planned out, my career, my marriage, my lifestyle, I've determined I'm not really going to shoot for upper middle class. I'll settle for middle class, so let's shoot for middle class. I'll get middle class down. I'll get my hobbies lined up. I'll get all my comforts. I'll get children out of the way. I'll get my retirement plan, and then I'll sit down in the, the, the metaphoric recliner only to then realize with a harumph that I have to get up and consider what might happen in the next life. Now I'll consider the issues of my eternal soul. Maybe you think now you'll squeeze the Lord in. Now you'll begin to study and and give some, some thought to what He said in His Word. Now I'll try to start learning how to pray that I've got everything in this life mapped out. I'm situated here. Now let's consider the next life. Well, I want to tell you that that won't work. God doesn't deal in those terms. With Him, as I've said multiple times in weeks past, with God, it's all or nothing. It's first or none. He's not going to be penciled into a busy schedule. It won't work. He will be worshipped with priority and supremacy, in majesty with fear and trembling and trepidation, with awe and reverence, Or He's not there. He won't be there. He will not lend His presence to that. He gives His glory to no other. He doesn't lend it out that you might give it back later. He doesn't parcel it out to anything else. It's His. Or, again, you've accomplished a lot in life. You're fairly confident in your abilities by this point. You know friends who are who are dead, who are in the gutter, who are in jail, who are in rehab, and and out, and you think, well, I haven't done that. I've, I've, I've done pretty well. Maybe with that same atti- attitude, you might gain eternal life. I'll read, just like in school. I'll read, and I'll study, and I'll, I'll search out the straight and narrow. I'll learn the ropes. I'll learn the lingo and the demeanor of a Christian, which is this. I'll learn that. And you think that... Surely, when God sees all of your work, He will say, Well done, my good and faithful, hard-working, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps, entrepreneurial servant. You've done so great. It, it's not going to work. That, that won't work. That does not line up with what the Bible tells us about the living God. So I hope you're not like this man. I hope you don't think like this man. The second thing I want us to notice in this verse, is who is being asked this question? To whom is this young man speaking? We read again, Behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher. He came up to him. If we refer back to verse 14, we know that the subject of this section is Jesus. We see Jesus mentioned again in verse 18, he is speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, the fullness of deity cloaked in humanity. God in the flesh. Last week I used the phrase covenantal condescension. He's he's cloaked himself in human flesh so that the Sea of Galilee did not run whenever he went down into that region. Because it would have. It would have fled from him. So he's cloaked himself in human flesh, and that's who he's speaking with. But he says he calls him teacher, rabbi. Mark tells us that he he actually added, he went a step further and called him good teacher. And therein lies another problem. The problem is not that Jesus is not a teacher, because he is, he's the greatest teacher who's ever lived the problem just like with so many false teachers and false gospels of our day is is not what is said it's what is not said what's left out Jesus Christ is a teacher he's a good teacher he's a great teacher but he's more than a teacher because he's more than a means to an end that's what a teacher is you go to school with your teachers and they teach you what you need to get to the next teacher But He's more than a means to an end. He is more than an instrument to your mental ascent. He's more than a medium by which education comes to you so that you can move to the next level. He's more than the method of conveying information. He's more than all of that because He is the end to which we strive. He is to us wisdom from God righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is the truth. You see, it doesn't help to come to church, to be around Christians, in order to get to Christ, so that you might ask Him to give you the information you need to live forever. He's not the first step in a process. He is the life. You see... This is eternal life that men know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent into the world. That is life. You don't go to him to, to have him tell you where step two is. You go to him and you stop and that is life. But he's just, he just says teacher. And many again in our day make this same mistake. Perhaps consciously, perhaps subconsciously. I believe it so, shows itself very faintly When people refer to our Lord as just Jesus, all the time, he's just Jesus, they might say it's all about Jesus, I love Jesus, Jesus loves me, we need to be like Jesus, Jesus wouldn't like that, words of red, words of Jesus written in red, is that his name, yes, But by and large, after you get out of the Gospels and the book of Acts, the mode of referring to the risen, ruling, reigning King of kings is Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, or Christ Jesus, or the Lord Jesus, or the Lord Jesus Christ, or just the Lord, or our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even the demons had enough respect to say, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Or the Holy One of God, even the demons knew to address him appropriately. Now, maybe I'm just being too scrupulous. Again, people maybe not necessarily trying to do that, but I think in our efforts to bring God down to our level, because the incarnation wasn't enough, we've got to bring him down even further and make him after our own image. We've made the Lord Jesus Christ into just a little bit more than a man named Jesus who is a means to our salvation rather than the God from whom we must be saved. We're saved by Him from Him, you see. So, it's just Jesus. Teacher. Or good teacher. Not Lord. Not Christ. Not God. Not king, not master, not creator, not savior, not winepress treader, not white horse rider, not nation crusher, just Jesus. My buddy Jesus, my friend Jesus, my, my lover Jesus. So many consider the Christ less than he is, and we're going to talk about this some tonight. He is God and he is man. And he's not so much man that he's not God. And he's not so much God that he's not man. We can't separate them. They're not mixed, and they're not intertwined, and they're not confused. He's both. If a police officer pulls you over and you roll down your window, you refer to him as sir, because you're afraid. If you were to meet the president, you would refer to him as Mr. President or Mr. Trump. And somehow we have gotten to where we have less respect for the king of the ages than we do men. You know why? Because we're afraid of men, but we're not afraid of the king. We, we don't talk about him rightly. We don't think about him rightly. And so when it comes out, he's just Jesus, just teacher. And we saw last week that his tenderness and his humility does not negate his sovereign power. It doesn't change that. Yes, we would we would pray our father, who art in heaven. You're here but you're there. You're transcendent. That's our God. And so I think that this man is displaying a misunderstanding of whom it is with whom it is he's addressing. He does not know who he's talking to. Now, how can we know that for sure? Well, then I want us to notice the third thing from this passage. What is being asked? or The question. What is being asked? Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, let's start with what he got correct. This man knows that eternal life is not guaranteed or assumed, this type of eternal life, for all men just by birth, just because you're born, you have this eternal, everlasting, blessed life. He knows that eternal life must be achieved or attained or acquired or granted or given. He, he knows he has to do something to get eternal life. He knows that in his present condition, he does not have that. He knows he needs it and he doesn't have it. In other words, what he got correct was, I know I'm going to die And if something doesn't change, that'll be it. That will be my demise. Eternal death, we would call it. I wonder if you realize that in a hundred years, every person in this room will be worm food. Every one of us, even the unborn infants in the womb, will be rotting in the grave in a hundred years. Your eternal destination will be settled by that time, for most of us, we, we might have 30 or 40 years, if that many. If that's not long. You know that as you get older, the days drag by and the years fly. By 100 years, we'll be gone. Well, we're all headed that way, and this is what he got right. He knew he was going to die, and he knew that he needed to get that settled, but that's where his, that's where his correctness stops Let's look at what he got wrong. First, he begins with the wrong subject. He says, Teacher, what good deed must I do? You see, he's thinking about himself. This is how I know that he doesn't really understand who it is he's speaking with because no one in the presence of God the Almighty understanding anything, the, the reality of God the Almighty walks up and turns the conversation to themselves. No one does that. Now, an appropriate question might be, can anything be done in my case, Lord? Is there any way that a man could have eternal life? No one in God's presence assumes everlasting life. They plead for mercy. They're hoping that there might be some mercy. They might ask, could it be possible for me? Or or, might there be someone who could fix my predicament? But they do not stroll up and begin to talk about themselves and wonder what they might do. If all of the kings and the mighty men of the earth will someday beg for the rocks and the mountains to fall down on them, to crush them... To hide them from the presence of the wrath of the Lamb, then what makes us think that we would stroll up into Jesus' presence and begin talking about ourselves? You don't. You won't do that. So he's got the wrong subject on his mind. He's thinking of himself. He's also got the wrong presupposition. He says, Teacher, what good deed must I do? He has presupposed, because he's thinking like a man, that there's something he must do, some payment that he might offer for eternal life. After all, nothing's free. He knows that as a wealthy man with great possessions. Nothing's free. I've paid for everything else I've got. Surely I can pay for this. Surely good deeds will be rewarded. Surely a good deed wouldn't earn death, he's thinking. He's asking the wrong question based on the wrong presupposition. That there might be something he can do. Maybe you're still asking that same question. You think, maybe you don't ask it explicitly, but in the back of your mind, you are motivated by this attitude what must I do? Go to church. What must I do? Sing louder in church. Follow the sermon closely. Learn how to properly observe the Lord's day. What must I do? Read my Bible often? More often? Try to pray often? More often? What must I do? Be kind to others? Work hard at my job? Stop condoning sin? uh, Approve a Christian ethic? What, What must I do? Pray the prayer? admit that I'm guilty, feel sorry for my sin, read Christian literature, care about other people, stand up for truth. What must I do, God? Homeschool my children, do family worship. I'm doing all of this. Surely I'm good. What must I do? I believe that on the last day there will be many people who will beg and plead this question. As they're being dragged away and thrown into the lake of fire... Just one more chance. Just tell me the one thing. Just tell me one thing and I'll do it anything you ask, God. I'll do it if you just tell me now. I'll do it. And there will be no mercy. It will not be found. It will be too late. Because there is still in that question the assumption, the assumption that there might be something I can do to bring me closer to God. He's got the wrong subject. He's got the wrong presupposition. He's got the wrong anthropology. That is the study of man. He says, Teacher, what good deed must I do? What good deed? This young man has assumed, he's thought in his mind as he stands in the presence of the thrice holy living God that he might have something good to offer. You see, his anthropology is off. He thinks as a man, he might do something good. He does not see that he is a sinful wretch. He does not know that there is none righteous. No, not one. There's, there's none who seeks God. There are no good people. There are no good deeds. I wonder if you know that you are a sinful man and a sinful woman, not broken not messed up not well yeah i've made some mistakes you are a sinner and a stench in the nostrils of god do you know that you can't do good even if you do good it's in and of yourself it's and it's still just human good it's not god good it's just man good it's we might call it horizontally good And I believe that even as Christians, very often we tend to think in the back of our minds that something I'm doing, this good deed I'm doing, is changing the way God feels about me, the way He sees me. We're driven by that. We have to mortify that. As Christians, we have to understand my righteousness is not in me. It's in another. It's given, freely given, through faith. It's not me he's got the wrong subject the wrong presupposition the wrong anthropology so he asked the wrong question yes we are mortal yes eternal life is something that must be attained but there is nothing you can do to earn it it's beyond your grasp left to yourself if this is the question that we have to all ask what must I do Will perish. There's no way that we can do anything to have eternal life. Now because of the way this question is asked, it appears that this rich young ruler knew something of the history of man. He was probably Jewish. I mean it says that he he admitted to keeping the law, the first table of the law or the second table of the law. He was probably a Jewish man. He more than likely was at least a little acquainted with the scriptures And he probably knew how God had told Adam that you can eat of all of the trees of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Which assumes that if you don't eat of it, you won't die, you'll live. Those are the terms of the covenant of works that God made with Adam. Eat, die, don't eat, live. And he probably knew that after Adam sinned, He and Eve were banished from the garden, the scriptures tell us, so that they might not get back to the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so he had probably read into Genesis 4 and saw the first physical death of a man as a result of that seed war promised in Genesis 3. We see there the immediate result of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the the woman going at each other. And then in Genesis 5, he had probably read over and over and over that all men die. As you read, and he died, and he died, and he died. It doesn't say, and he passed away, or he passed. They died. Death, dying, died, those are biblical terms. We don't pass, we die. Because of the sin of Adam, everlasting life that was promised is lost. And he had probably studied Daniel and read in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so he, he probably knew that there was an illusion in the prophecies of the Old Testament Scriptures that some would live forever, that everlasting life was not gone forever, that there was still a faint hint that some might have it. And so this young man is approaching the Lord and asking, what will it take me to get back what was lost? How can I get that? Now let's think about this from a purely human standpoint. Again, what was it that cost all men eternal life? It was sin. Sin is the problem, the sin of Adam. Sin into the world through one man and death through sin... Therefore, death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. Sin is the problem. Well, well then what could satisfy God's justice and His righteousness with regard to sin? Well, it would have to be full payment for sins committed. Where, Where there has been wrong, that would have to be made right. It would have to be fixed. Now, let's just imagine that we might could go back in time and fix every sin that's ever been committed by any man ever would that get us eternal life with God? No, it wouldn't, because we're still sinners by nature. Our nature is repugnant to God. You'll remember when we talked about forgiveness, that obedience rendered, is that, that's what's expected. It can't be used as payment. If your job is to mop floors, and you mop floors, and expect to get more than, than what you've been promised as, as wages... You're not going to get it. You're not doing extra by doing your job. Can you make restitution for your own sins? No. And so from that vantage point, just a human perspective, what can you do to have eternal life? Nothing. There's nothing you can do to have eternal life. You can't do it with your physical life, so what makes you think you could do it with spiritual life? The Scripture says that we can't do anything to add a single day to our lives. So let's consider it then from a biblical standpoint. I want to give you four truths from Scripture about eternal life. And we'll be done. The first one is this. The doctrine of eternal life is rooted in the everlasting decree of God. The doctrine of eternal life is rooted in the everlasting decree of of God. I want to just make a reference to some scriptures. I won't read through them all. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 we read of God promising eternal life before the ages began. We call that the covenant of redemption, that inter-Trinitarian covenant to redeem a people who would live forever to the praise of God's glorious grace. Before we ever existed there was a promise of eternal life. We, we read in Acts chapter 13 and, and verse 48, and those who were appointed unto eternal life believed. So, so you see, eternal life and that idea, that doctrine, the way the, tr- the Scriptures bring it up, they show us that first it is rooted in the eternal decree of God. It's not an afterthought. It was always the plan of God's purpose. Secondly... Eternal life comes to fallen men in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 1 John 5.11 teaches us that eternal life is a gift from God given to us in the person of His Son. Romans 6.23 teaches us that eternal life is a gift given by God in Christ. That is in union with His Son. Christ is life. When you're joined to Him, you get the life. John 6, 40 teaches us that in the eternal purpose of the Father, the one who sets his spiritual gaze and affection upon Christ and believes savingly in Him is the one who will have eternal life. And Jude 21 tells us that it is the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. It's all in Christ. It's all Him. Again, He's not the means to it. He is it. So eternal life comes to fallen men in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, saving faith is eternal life presently possessed in the heart. John 3.16 tells us that eternal life shall be had by those who believe in the Son of God. John 4.14 tells us that the believing one currently possesses life. You don't believe to get it. You believe because you got it. It's already there, you see. John 5.24 teaches us that hearing Christ's word and believing in the Father who speaks, who, whose word he speaks is characteristic of the one who currently possesses eternal life. It produces faith. It is eternal life presently possessed in the heart. We can't understand eternity. Nobody can imagine the idea of somebody living forever and yet all of us in here are thinking, already hopefully believing in living in that reality that I'm going to live forever. We've never seen it. We've never, we've never watched it. No one's ever told us about it except for the scriptures and, and we, we, it, we live like it's right here. Like we're, we're there already. That's faith. <laughs> Faith is eternal life presently possessed in the heart. Now, perhaps you would say, I feel like I believe the truth of Scripture, and I believe the story of Jesus' life as recorded in the Scriptures. How can I know for certain that I have that eternal life, that saving faith? Fourthly, eternal life possessed in the heart produces the life of eternity now. When I say life of eternity, I mean life characterized by eternity. John writes in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, assurance of eternal life can be had right now by spiritual evaluation. That's what 1 John is. It was a letter written saying, Read this so that when you get done, you'll know if you have eternal life. And when you read it, what is it but a list of doctrinal standards and practical observations. Believe this and do this. And if you're believing properly and you're living properly, you have eternal life. Because that living properly is the life of eternity already being lived out. It's as if when we die, there will be no change. We'll just keep walking straight into the life we were already living in. Eternal life is possessed in the heart, and when it is, it produces the life of eternity, a life characterized by eternity. So what can a man do to have eternal life? Nothing. What has God done so that men may have eternal life? Everything necessary. I'll read this quote from Thomas Manton. I've been simmering in some of his sermons on faith. And he says, To go to the grave as a bed of ease and chamber of rest of which Christ keeps the keys. All this is a matter of faith. We don't know anybody that's died and come back that that can tell us about it. And yet we, we, we know the story after story after story of saints who have closed their eyes in death knowing that it's not the end. They know. No, for them it's just like going to sleep in the morning. I assume I will wake up. They go to sleep in death. They go to the grave as if it were a bed of ease and a chamber of rest and Christ has the keys. They know it. It just exists there in the heart. Jesus says, whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's evidence that there are two kinds of death. There's physical death and there's spiritual death. And as believers trusting in Christ for eternal life, we believe. I'm going to die physically. I know that. But when I do, that's just that it's sort of just passing through a door to go to the other side where I'll live forever. And Jesus asked him that reference, do you believe? Do you believe? Is, is that in your heart? Is the unseen Christ substantiated in your heart? You've never seen Him. You've never heard His voice. You don't know how tall He is. We can assume what color His hair is, but I don't recommend it. But you know He's there. You, 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 you commune with Him as a real person. That's faith. By that same faith, we come to the Lord's table and we fellowship with Him. We fellowship with the unseen Christ. We remember His death. We proclaim His death. Because in His death, we died. In His resurrection, death was defeated for us. Eternal life was won by the work of Christ. And so at the Lord's table, by faith, we fellowship with Him who is the resurrection and who is the life. So let's examine our hearts as the elements are distributed and then we'll come to the table.